you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Psalm 13. Psalm 13 this morning as we continue our series of messages through the book of Psalm. Today we have come to the Psalm of Lament. Lament. We've been learning and seeing that the book of Psalms is a compilation of responses to different experiences humans walk through. In fact, the book of Psalms catalogs just about every conceivable experience or season of life we as humans may find ourselves in. And they give us language or the response that we're to have to God in those seasons. The Psalms, therefore, are not just a book, it's not just a book to be studied. They're not just songs to be read. They're actually prayers that we pray back to God. They give us language before the Lord, especially in seasons when we don't know what to say. We don't know what to pray. We don't know how to respond to God. Today we're coming to, as I mentioned, a psalm of lament as we begin to move from the introductory psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, to different samplings and different types of psalms. Lament is one of the most prevalent types of psalms, and it's for good reason. It's a a prayer, a song that's meant to be prayed in response to suffering and difficulty. It's important that we note right from the beginning that this psalm is described as being for the choir director. It says a psalm of David. It's from David's experience, but that phrase choir director means it's meant to be applied to people in various life situations. It's meant to be prayed and internalized by people as they work through suffering. And as I've prayed through this passage this week and as I prepared to share God's word with you today, my hope is that this will create a new category for some of us and how we relate to God. Maybe some of you at times in your life, maybe even right now, have felt like God's abandoned you. Maybe there have been seasons in your life you've felt that God has turned his back on you or left you behind. What do you say to God when you feel that way? Some of us may even think it's wrong to communicate those kinds of feelings to God. One of the reasons I think Psalms of Lament are so important is because in American Christianity, many of us may have caught the idea that we're only supposed to talk to God when we're happy. We're supposed to put this face on when we come to church that makes it look like we have everything together, that everything's great, that there are no problems. But what do we do when we as broken people walk through a broken world? What do we do, church, when it feels like the brokenness and the pain and the hurt and the sorrow is going to undo us? What do we say then? Here's what I want you to hear right from the beginning from your pastor. All of us are going to deal with pain and brokenness in our life somehow. The only question is, Are we going to deal with our pain and our sorrow in a way that honors the Lord and brings healing to our souls? Psalms of lament 
these prayers are meant to give us the vocabulary, the language to express our disappointments, our grief, our sorrow before the Lord in a way that honors Him, but still allows us to experience His comfort and life-giving presence. I want to suggest three kind of phases to this psalm of lament that you can consider, that you can incorporate into your own life that will not only help you in this season, but I also pray that many of you who have friends, have loved ones who are suffering, who are walking through difficulty, this is meant to be for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves as believers. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is that David, as he prays, prays honestly. Your psalms of lament, these responses to God, start with prayers of honesty. Look in your Bibles at verse 1. Listen to the honesty with which David prays. He says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Now it's easy to jump right into the honesty and miss the way David addresses the Lord. But did you see how he addressed the Lord in verse 1? He said, how long, Lord? Now if you're paying attention in your Bibles, all four letters of the word Lord are capitalized because it's a reference for the personal name of God. It's a reference for Yahweh. And anytime you see that in your Bibles, what you're seeing is like a hyperlink you're to click on that pulls up a whole series of truths about who God is. On the one hand, the Lord reminds us that he's a God of promise. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who promised that Abraham would have a descendant one day who would be a blessing to the nations. The Lord reminds us that he's a God of promise who's promised that one day a seed is going to come who's going to crush the head of the serpent and defeat evil once and for all. The Lord also reminds us that he's a God of power. This is the God who has the resume of redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt, the reigning superpower of the world at the time with miraculous power. So what I want you to see, and the reason I'm emphasizing this is because honesty is not an angry honesty. Sometimes I hear people very mistakenly say, well, you can get angry at God and shake your fist and even be disrespectful to God. No, that's not what you see in this passage. You see a reverent honesty. You see David starting from a position of respect and honor to the Lord. But from that position of respect and honor, he does give us four how longs. These four how longs emphasize that the suffering he's been enduring has been going on for some time. And they correspond to elements of God's character and his power that David is missing. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is missing God's presence. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? This is missing God's grace that hiding of the face is, is a figure of speech that speaks to intimacy with God. And David says, I, I don't feel you that way. You don't seem close to me. You seem distant. 
He goes on to say, how long will I store up anxious concerns within me and agony in my mind every day? This is David missing God's peace. He's restless. He's anxious. He's Everything he's trying is failing. And then he also mentions he's missing God's power. How long will my enemy dominate me? What you read in these first two verses is David totally discouraged. David despondent. You read commentaries and commentators debate about what exactly this experience was in David's life. My theory is this is probably one of the lowest points of David's life, which had to revolve around the dysfunction that was unleashed in his family when one of his sons killed another son and was exiled. And after returning from exile, Absalom mounts a coup. David flees Jerusalem. As he's fleeing, his enemies begin to surround him and mock him and shame him. It is only through a miracle that he's able to mount an army and defeat his own son who's killed in the process. And one of the reasons I think that could be where David's speaking from here in the psalm is because if you read back, you know that much of the dysfunction and the destruction that was unleashed in David's family was the result of his abuse of his own power as he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. God said the sword is going to be unleashed in your family. It's probably similar to the experience Adam and Eve had after falling, after disobeying God, when they saw one of their sons kill the other and they realized in living color what their, son, what their sin had unleashed in the world. David's brokenhearted. He's discouraged. He's despondent. And what we need to read as we read these four how longs is praying honestly means that I'm open with God about the apparent disconnect between my theology and my experience. What you see modeled in these first two verses is an honest prayer that acknowledges the apparent disconnect or incongruity between who God is and what I'm feeling and experiencing. Because think about this. Is God present? Is God gracious? Is God peace? Is God powerful? Yes. The answer to all four of those how longs is yes. And yet, what David, from a position of respect and honor, says to God, is God, I know you are these things. I know you're the Lord. I know you're Yahweh. But, but right now it feels like my life is falling apart. The picture that helps me process lament is a puzzle. Through the years with my family, we've played puzzles. And when you're putting a puzzle together, you know what you do. You look at each piece and you try to figure out how it connects to the rest. And I remember one specific moment, one summer I think it was with our family, when we were, had this massive puzzle that was going to take hours and hours to put together. And I had this piece that I kept trying to make fit in the puzzle. You know how that works. If you can't make it fit, you set it to the side and you, you eventually come back to it. Well, I kept coming back to this piece. But when I ended the puzzle, what I realized was the puzzle was complete and the piece was still there. Not a fun moment. 
Because you should just spend hours trying to get this piece to fit when what we'd realized was it was left over from another puzzle, right? And so I was left holding that piece that didn't fit. And the reason I think that's helpful is because what lament is, is that's holding a piece of our lives, like that puzzle piece up before the Lord and saying, God, this doesn't seem to fit. God, this doesn't make sense to me and my limited knowledge. God, this doesn't seem to fit with who I know you are from your word. Maybe the puzzle piece you're holding up today is a relationship with your family or your kids or your spouse. Lord, right now in this season of life, it just doesn't seem to fit. There's something broken. There's something wrong here. Maybe it's feelings in your life or you're feeling down or discouraged or depressed and you just hold it up and lament and you say, God, this this piece of my life doesn't seem to fit with who you say you are. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's a doctor's visit. It's giving you a report and you cry out to God saying, God, this just doesn't seem to fit. I wonder if some of us need to know this morning from God's word that it is right and good to cry out to God and say, God, I know what your word says and I know that's who you are, but right now my life just doesn't fit. Amen. You see, if we're going to experience the comfort and the healing presence of God in a way that honors him, we have to, we must in seasons of our life where we're experiencing discouragement, despondency, say to God, God, I love you and I trust you, but right now it just doesn't seem to fit. David doesn't stop there, though. David moves from praying honestly to praying desperately. He begins to pray desperately. Look in your Bibles at verse 3. He says, consider me and answer me, Lord, my God. Now, don't miss that because David begins to personalize this here. He calls him Yahweh again, but he calls him my God. As if to say, God, I know I'm still your child. I know I'm still yours. But from this position of personalization, David offers two petitions. On the one hand, he says, verse 3, consider me and answer me. This means, God, see my situation. God, see what's going on. I know you're all-knowing. I know you're all-powerful. But there's something good about me seeing, me telling you that I need you to see me. I need you to hear what's going on and observe my life. The second thing he says is, verse 3, restore brightness to my eyes. This is a prayer of restoration. It's a figure of speech that speaks to God's sustaining and refreshing work in our lives. Refresh me. It's the exact same phrase in 1 Samuel 14 where Jonathan, David's friend and Saul's son, was weary in battle one day and it says that he found some honey and ate of it and it restored him. It says literally it brightened his eyes. It's the picture of somebody being restored and refreshed. What I want you to recognize is the prayer that David models for us here 
is not one of removal from suffering and difficulty. It is that God would sustain and restore him through difficulty and heartache. Now, I want to be clear about something. It's not wrong for you to pray for removal. It is not wrong to say, God, heal my cancer. God, convict my wayward child. God, solve this insurmountable problem in our family. It's not wrong to pray those things. But the essence of lament, the essence of praying before God that is modeled in this prayer of David is that we would pray at the end of the day, God, I need more than anything for you to sustain and restore me. Why? Look at what he says in verse 3. End of verse 3 going into 4. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. David says death is at my door. God, if you don't intervene, I'm lost. David says his enemy is going to win. He's going to triumph over him. God, if you don't do something, I'm going to be defeated totally and completely. In other words, what David is saying is, God, you are my only hope. The only thing standing between me and defeat, me and death, is you, God. If you don't move, I will be defeated and destroyed. You see, we experience the healing of God in a way that honors him in a lament when we pray with a desperation that says, God, you and you alone are my only hope. There have been numerous occasions in the Bible when God's people have been in that situation. One of them stuck out to me this past week about King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, who was at one point in his kingship confronted by armies that appeared overwhelming. And I want you to listen to his prayer of desperation as he prays before the Lord. He said, Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand and no one can stand against you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you, for your name is in this temple, and we will cry out to you before our distress, and you will hear and deliver. Now listen to the turn in King Jehoshaphat's prayer. God, now here are the Ammonites, Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look now how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Oh God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. When you pray in desperation, what you're praying is, God, I don't know what to do, but I know this, God, if you don't move, 
If you don't intervene and miraculously work in the situation, I will be destroyed. If you want to experience the healing power and comfort of God in a way that honors Him, there's a prayer of desperation that's got to emerge from our souls, which we show to God that He's our only hope. I said at the beginning of this message that all of us are going to cry out to something. We're all going to turn someplace to deal with the pain. But praying a desperation prayer, what offering up this prayer of urgency means is that I see God as the ultimate source of my help. What that doesn't mean is that God can't work through other means. God can work through doctors. God can work through medicine. God can work through friends and people in your life to support you, encourage you. But it is an acknowledgement that God and God alone is the one who heals. One of the connected issues that we have to deal with when we talk about depression and discouragement is medication. And I have prayed over this section of my message all week. And the Lord has not given me freedom to take it out. And so I'm going to to say some things to you about medication and depression and dealing with emotional problems like anxiety with medication. And I do not mind being quoted. I don't want to be misquoted, though. So I want you to listen carefully to what I have to say next, and I'm going to stick to my notes pretty tightly here. What I don't think lament means is that if you pray and read your Bible, all your problems will go away. I also don't think lament means that if you pray and read your Bible, your depression will automatically go away. There are times and situations where medication is absolutely needed for depression or other emotional challenges we might face. However, however, I am concerned as your pastor that as a society, we have become incredibly reliant on medication. My concern is that so many of us have bought into what another author has coined, the magic of the mouth. That is to say that many of us may be under the impression that all we have to do to fix any problem in the world is find the right pill and put it in our mouth and put it in our body. My concern is that many of us are looking to psychologists and psychiatrists who do not believe in the presence of a soul or the existence of God for advice about our problems. My concern is that so many of us are talking to these secular people without ever talking to a pastor or a fellow believer about what we're struggling with. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for those kinds of conversations. I'm not saying there are not situations where medication is not needed. I am saying that so many of us have begun to see, I believe, medication as a long-term solution to problems that we never bring into the church of God. My encouragement, therefore, is simply this. As we talk about lament, as we talk about depression, as we talk about discouragement, in general... And I've actually advised some of you of this when you've come to me asking me this question. 
In general, I recommend that our believers, our church family, see medication as a temporary, not a long-term solution. In general. I'm not saying there aren't cases where long-term care is not required. But in general, when you receive medication, especially for anxiety or depression, one of the things that happens is you receive relief. But far too often what happens in these kinds of arenas, it's like going to the doctor and saying, my arm hurts. And so often with medication, what happens is it's like the doctor sticking a needle in your arm and giving you Novocaine, and it stops hurting. Oh, wow, the pain's gone. But just like that doctor who sticks that needle in your arm to deal with the pain, and it alleviates the symptom, it doesn't address the cause. What I've recommended to Members of the churches I've pastored for years that they would see medication if they are so inclined to take that is a short-term solution to help them address the problem that's underneath. I recognize if you're not able to sleep, if you're so beyond yourself that you can't think straight, it's impossible to figure out why your arm is hurting. I understand that. But we need to recognize that many of us may have adopted a very unbiblical view of how we're to wrestle and to work through emotional problems like worry and depression. The last thing I want to say about this is this. If this is the case, if I'm encouraging you to see your church as a place where you can talk about these things, the church of God must be a place where we can be open and honest about our sin and our struggle. It must be a place where we do more than just wear the mask. It must be a place where you do more than just come and sit and sing and then go home every week. It must be a place where we are truly a family, truly a body that cares for one another. We must be that kind of place. If, if this kind of prayer, if this kind of crying out to God is something that we are to do, we must recognize that we're not just crying out to God. This is also reality that we're to cry out to one another. I've said it many times as your pastors. I've been here a year plus. Are there people in your life who know your struggle? Are there believers who know God's word and who are going to do more than just empathize with you, but are going to encourage you and be with you? Do you have those kind of people in your life? Because listen to me, the question is not whether we're going to experience brokenness and hurt and depression and discouragement. That's not the question. The only question is, how are we going to deal with it? How are we going to address it? Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers, battled depression his entire life. And he said this from his pulpit at one time. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of the wretchedness as I go to. One of the things I want to say to you this morning is if you're struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with depression, you're on medication for some of those things, I want you to look at me as I say this to you. You are not a freak. 
You're not a weirdo. There's not some massive thing wrong with you that's unique to you that nobody else struggles with. You are experiencing the brokenness of being a broken person in a broken world. And we as a church have to be a place that loves and welcomes you no matter where you may find yourself. As long as I'm pastor, that's going to be my goal, my desire for us as a church. I would be remiss if I didn't just add this as I close this little section. If that's you this morning and you want to talk to your pastor, you want to talk to somebody, you want to pray with somebody, success to my job for me is not sitting in my office and just answering emails. I had somebody tell me a long time ago, one of my mentors, people are not an interruption to my schedule. People are my schedule. We as a church can minister to you, can encourage you. If you need help, navigating medication, what you're working through, we want to stand with you as you do that. This passage ends, though, with David moving from praying honestly to praying desperately to experiencing the comfort of God that results in God's comfort. Look in your Bibles at verse 5 and see how David finishes this passage. He says, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. David's response after praying honestly and desperately is first to affirm his confidence in God. He believes God is going to deliver him. He is trusting in God's faithful love. He also says that he's rejoicing in God's deliverance in his life. He's shouting for joy that God has treated him generously. Now let's be clear about something. David is still in a mess. David is still under this incredible weight. And yet, he prays this prayer. It ends with not him discouraged, not despondent. It ends with exaltation. It ends with praise. What happened? Well, what we know from Scripture is that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised David that he would have a king who would reign forever. And what kept David sane, what kept his feet on the ground, even amidst depression and discouragement, was the promise of God. And Christian, this morning, if you know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to know that you and I are the recipients of that same promise God made to David. Because if you know Jesus, you have placed your faith and your trust in a king who died for you, who rose again three days later, and stands now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you so that you can pray with confidence that no matter what happens with cancer, no matter what happens with that wayward child, no matter what happens with the struggles and the fears that feel like at times they're going to tear us apart, no matter what happens to those things, you can know that in the end you stand with King Jesus by faith. And because of that, you are victorious. 
no matter what you face in this life, what the gospel does for you and for me is it keeps our feet on the ground and say, God, no matter what I'm going through, no matter where I find myself, I know that Jesus Christ is better. I know that he's better because of what he's done for me. Now, here's what I want you to see in closing. With this, I'm going to be done. What you see in this psalm is a transformation in the life of David. He prays honestly. He prays desperately. And what happens in his life is he experiences the comfort of God. What I want you to see in your life is if you want to experience God's comfort and healing in a way that sustains you in the midst of life's most fiercest storms, this psalm is a model for how we experience the comfort of God. See, because when I pray honestly, when I pray desperately, there is a sense in which God provides his comfort. So often we make the mistake of thinking prayer is just about getting God to do what we want him to do. So many of us may think prayer is just God, us calling in divine heavenly air support on our problems. Remember, prayer is not just about communicating to God. Prayer is also how God changes you. And when I pray honestly and I pray desperately, especially when I pray God's word, that is how God begins to comfort and sustain me. Why? Because when I pray honestly and desperately, I remove compartments from my life. My life is bare before God. But can I tell you what really makes praying this way liberating in your life? Is when you pray honestly, when you pray desperately, you are confessing that God is God and you are not. I've said this before, but, but our culture, what it's doing today, it's every single level telling us that we are God. You're God over your own gender, your sexuality, who you see yourself to be. You define truth, right and wrong for yourself. What we're told at every single level is that we are God. But what I want you to know is that it's exhausting trying to be God when you're not. It's exhausting. It is absolutely debilitating to try to be God when you're not. Some of us in this room struggle with control. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. Some of us are control freaks. We like to be in control. We like to have a plan and a to-do list. I'll raise my hand. That's my struggle. Guilty is charged. But when I pray honestly before the Lord, desperately before the Lord, do you know what I'm doing? I'm repenting of my God-like self. I'm turning from me being the God of my life, and I'm saying, God, only you are truly God. And when I pray that way and I cry out to God from that position of discouragement and suffering, there's comfort that God brings into my life. This past week, I had the privilege of um, going to see one of our longtime members, David Anderson, who passed away this past weekend. David was a 
longtime member of our church, very respected member of this community. I went to see him on Thursday, and he was in and out of consciousness, but I got to see him when he was awake for a little bit. We got to talk. He even made a quip about how young I was. You guys are keeping me humble even from your hospital beds, okay? And uh, we got to talk, and I got to pray with him. And I was, after I prayed with him, I was talking to his wife, and she said, Spencer, I, I just don't know how people who don't know the Lord get through things like this. How, how do they endure loss and heartache and difficulty without prayer and without God's presence and God's people encouraging? And I just looked at her with all the love in the world, and I just said, they don't. They don't get through those things without turning and running to something. See, because what death does in our world today is death has a very clarifying effect in our lives. Because while some of us may have bought the lie that our culture is pushing that we're our own gods, every single one of you are going to die unless Jesus comes back before that happens. Every one of you. And while our culture says you can define right and wrong, your gender and all the rest for yourself, death is this crossroads that shows us who is really God and who's not. So what I want you to know, sweet people, is that it is not wrong for you from your hurt and your pain and your brokenness to cry out to God, honestly. God, this just doesn't seem to add up. I know you are who you are, but right now I'm hurting. It is not wrong for you to pray desperately. God, if, if you don't move, this whole thing's going to fall apart. And God, it, and church, it is not wrong for you to pray to God, God, I believe in the promise that you have given me. I believe in the comfort that comes from knowing that Jesus has overcome. I want to do something a little different as we close this morning. I'm going to, in just a moment, ask you to stand with me and read Psalm 13. Some of you may have noticed that I didn't have a stand and read at the beginning, and you may have thought I was sick or something was wrong with me. Um, no, I, I want to finish by having us read this together. And my hope is, is that this psalm will give us a new vocabulary for how we talk to God. So we're going to put these words on the screen in just a moment so we're all reading from the same translation. But my heart is simply this. When you come to the Psalms of Lament and you read Psalm 13, to know that while some of us may not be in that kind of position right now as we sit here this morning, at some point in your life you will be. At some point in your life someone you know will be. And what people today don't need are platitudes. They don't need just a slap on the back, tell them everything's going to be all right. They need people who are going to wade into their lives and be with them and pray psalms like Psalm 13 together. My prayer for you is that if that's where you're finding yourself today, know that it is perfectly right and biblical and good for you to cry out to God together that way. And that's how I want to close this service. Would you please stand with me? We're going to put these words on the screen. I just want to read this as pastor and people together as we close this message. We're going to read Psalm 13, verses 1 through 6. We'll have verses 1 through 3 in the first screen, and then the second screen we'll put... Four through six. Let's read this together and very slowly. How long, Lord, 
Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Father, that is our prayer this morning. From the depths of our brokenness, And the brokenness around us, we cry out to you, O God, and say, God, do not forget us. God, do not abandon us. We need you. God, we believe in your promise. We believe in the surety of what you've accomplished through the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. God, I pray over the people standing here today who know you. I pray, God, that you and you alone, you alone, God, would comfort the brokenhearted. I pray, God, that you would give us psalms like Psalm 13 to have language to pray. Lord, when it hurts so bad, we don't know what to say, that we would turn to Psalms like Psalm 13 and cry out to you, God, with all of our hearts. How long, O Lord? God, I pray that we as a church will be the kind of place where people can be open and honest about their brokenness. Oh God, Help us to care more, more about our eternal destiny and the souls of our brothers and sisters than we do about keeping up appearances. Oh God, help us to wade into each other's lives and the struggles and the fears that we face. Oh God, help us to be a people who believe that you indeed, Jesus, are better. Fathers, we move into a time of response. I pray that you would move.